0: All right, we are now going to be doing a class on the 10 days of Chuva. We, we finished Rosh Hashanah, yeah. for better or for worse. What? We
1: didn't start
0: Rosh Hashanah. Oh, the this class we're done with Rosh Hashanah. We're moving on. So, okay. Now, we're only doing one class on the 10 days of Tshuva, because um, have to, the next class has to be of Kippur, and then after that we just have one more of these classes. We'll do that one for, that one We be saved for sukkahs. Not on sukkahs, the topic of the class will be sukkahs. What I want to do in this class is I want to explain how the tshuva of the 10 days of tshuva is different than normal tshuva. However, there are some important things that I think it's worth mentioning about the 10 days of tshuva, they're not really directly pertaining to the main topic of the class, which is chassidus on tshuva. But um, I feel it's my responsibility to tell you these things. So, for the next few minutes, we're just going to be getting random, well, very important facts about the ten days of Tshuva, and then we'll actually start the chasidus on the ten days of Tshuva. The ten days of Chuva are called the ten days of Tshuva because they start with Rosh Hashanah, the first of the month of Tishrei, and they conclude during they conclude on the tenth, which is Yom Kippur. Put it very simply. The 10 days of Shuva, um, as our sages put it, are um, on the one hand of a positive element, and on the other hand, of maybe what you might consider a negative element. Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. We did not really discuss that because we we're dealing with the Hasidis of Rosh Hashanah. In Hasidus, we emphasize much more the crowning Hashem king, not that the judgment isn't discussed as well. The simple understanding of God's judgment um, on the most basic level is as follows. God keeps an account of every person's deeds. God keeps an account of every family's deeds. God keeps an account of every community's deeds. God keeps an account of every country's deeds. And God keeps an account of the entire deeds of the whole world. So the Natalic produced also for non-Jews. Correct. This is this is is, right. This is Jews and non-Jews alike. And On Rosh Hashanah, God puts all of the merits, all the deeds that God considers to be positive on one side of a scale and all the demerits on the other side of a scale and sees how things balance out. He does that for each individual, assuming that they are of the age where they're responsible for themselves, so not children. He does that for every family unit. He does that for every community. He does that for every country. He does that for the whole world at large. If the merits outweigh the wait, wait. if the merits outweigh um, the demerits, God inscribes that person or group into the book of life, and they will continue to live out whatever their divinely appointed lifespan is. Um, if the opposite is the case, God writes them in the book of the opposite of life, and then they will be decreed to die that year, or wiped out, torn apart as the case would have it if you're talking about communities, countries, or whatever. No questions yet.
2: Awesome.
0: If it's equally balanced, then God does not pass judgment and waits. On Yom Kippur, God examines everything again. Anybody who's moved columns is written in the appropriate book. So some people are erased from the book of life and put in the opposite book. Some people are erased from the book of death and put in the book of life. And those people who their judgment suspended, God sees... If things are now on the side of the merits, they're written into the book of life. If it's still balanced, they're written into the book of death, and then God seals it, and that is that, and that's the end of it. Now, there's there's sources that indicate there's a little there's ways around this and you know loopholes and backdoors, but that's the basic thing. Which means the ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are the days that God is deciding your fate. They're kind of serious, and therefore it's an auspicious time to do tshuva, and also because of this. Um, the practice is to be extra careful with things, even things that are not necessarily one is usually careful with, and even if the things are not really reflecting their own, the real spiritual level a person is on. So if there are halachic stringencies that one does not normally observe, and we generally don't say you should just like, you know, when you're in the mood, you're stringent, when you're not in the mood, you're lenient. If you're going to be stringent, you should be stringent across the board. But when it comes to 10 days of Chuva, it is appropriate to be extra stringent, even if you know after the 10 days of tshuva you are not, because you are, so to speak, under the microscope. On the other hand, the 10 days of tshuva are also a time when Hashem is more available, and Hashem looks at every Jew very favorably. Um, and it says that God never um, rejects the prayers of the community, and in the 10 days of Chuva, the same applies to the prayers of the individual. So on the one hand, we're under God's microscope. On the other hand, he is very available. Um, there's a verse that says, Seek God out when he is to be found. And our sages say that refers to these 10 days. So it's a time when extra closeness is available, which makes it maybe easier to return to God. Um, but it's also a time we're under the microscope. And so it's very serious. This is not chazid. It's just like basic Judaism stuff, which is important to know because between spending so much time on Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, we sometimes forget that the 10 days of tshuva are an important part of that process. Um, one final thing I will say on this topic, and if there are some questions, I don't mind answering them, but we, I don't want to get bogged down here because this is just like a public service announcement. It's not the real class. The weight, every individual deed, a deed doesn't mean actions. It can mean actions. It can mean speech. It can mean thoughts. It can mean any, anything you have control over in your life. That weight that everything carries is determined by God and God alone and only God knows. Unless you are a prophet, you do not actually know how much one mitzvah counts or how much one sin counts. Um, There's sometimes one mitzvah that weighs many sins and one sin that outweighs many mitzvahs. One should always assume that it's equally balanced for a very practical reason. If you assume that you have a surplus of mitzvahs, you might feel that you can get away with a few sins and it won't cost you too much because it's the balance that matters, at least in terms of this reward and punishment thing. If you feel like you're too far in the the sin column, right? you might feel you'll never do enough minutes to get out. And that might actually do a few more sins and get you into the sin column. But if you think you're equally balanced at every moment, you're likely to try to use that next opportunity to tip the scales in your favor. Um, Your favor, your family's favor, the community's favor, the country, the world, it's an important idea. The other thing that's important to know about this, um, there's two more important pieces. Number one, Hashem has a general bias of 500 to one in favor of the positive. So all things being equal, one mitzvah outweighs 500 sins as a general like starting point, just so you kind of get a sense of where he's coming from. This is derived from verses in the Torah. And the last thing is that when you do tshuva, God does not count your sins against you. Um, the corollary to that is that if you regret, you generally regret having done a mitzvah, God does not count the mitzvahs in your favor. He judges you on your past actions, to the degree to which you still stand by them. Okay, so those are just important things about. It. Now, again, it's not a program; it's not a, It's an algorithm. You can't manipulate God. He, he, you know. You know, unless you're a prophet, you will not exactly know. <laughs> but that's the basics. Yes. So
3: how does it work for like the saying you are either written in the book of life or if you have so many sins that like you die that year? So how would illness fit into that?
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So two things. One, and we do say this Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. There's a prayer called the Nisanatokav where it says that God determines what's going to happen to everybody that year. And it says who's going to live and who's going to die and who's if they die is going to be by fire or by drowning or by illness. Um, yeah. Now, I do want to make it clear that a person can die not because they were written to the book of death for their sins. It just could be that God, just, you know, the person was only supposed to be in the earth for a certain amount of time. Right. So this is talking about if a person was sent down into earth for a lifespan of let's say 70 or 80 years as the verse says, right? Um, they're not gonna necessarily live past whatever the, because they were righteous. And then conversely, just because someone dies young, some people are sent into the world only for a short period of time to begin with. This is kind of like premature termination. Um, but yes, God then will also, if a person's written to the book of life, then there's a subsequent judgment of how that life will look. And if written to the book of death, at what point and in what manner that death will occur. Um, heavy stuff. Yes.
2: I kind of have, like, a, my question was similar to hers. Uh, because of that, like, so what if, what if there's a righteous person who God knows that this year this person will die? Does that mean they're written in the book of death? Does yes. Even it could be, if they're a righteous person?
0: Yeah, but that's not written in the book of death because of punishment. That's a, diff- a different idea. Okay it right? In other words, that's not out of judgment. That's just because, like you know, they're supposed to, you know, they're supposed to leave the world at a certain point. Yeah, not everything is a punishment, and not everything is a reward. Yeah. So technical. Um, what's considered a family? What's considered like their country? Um, I don't know for sure. Um, my understanding is it probably works based on the. Um, the, the kind of, you know, a married couple raising children together would be a family. Once the children move out of the house and are raising their own family, um, then they would probably be their own family. Um, in terms of what happens if they're single and they're still being supported by the parents or someone independent, I don't know what I don't know exactly how God does those cut off things. Um, and the community is generally speaking the place that you live regularly. The general halacha cutoff point for that is 30 days. If you're living someplace for 30 days, you're considered, for most halacha purposes, a member of the community. So if there's communal obligations, such as to support the poor, you're obligated to participate at that point. That would be my guess as to how it's calculated. Countries probably has to do with um, government, because they kind of you function as a unit when you're all governed by the same authority. Um, none of this says explicitly, it's just my you know, best guess. Um, I'm not a prophet, he's not actually telling me. Yeah.
3: Sorry, I'm just having a hard time understanding. So, like, for people who are just, like, ill or, like, mass genocide, like the Holocaust, is that something that was already predetermined? And so all those people are already written in the book of, like, death beforehand? I'm just not going to really understand.
0: Okay, I'm not going to answer that question, because that gets into general theological questions, which, if you want, on Wednesday during questions and answers, ask, and I'll... And I'll Perfectly fine answering at wow. that. But if we do it now, then we will never get to the Chassidus about the 10 days of Tshuva. Um, I just feel that I could jump right into the 10 days of Truva and this like basic stuff about Judaism, which I think is important people know, uh, is very easy to, to just miss. So the question is important, but we'll, again, if you want, we'll talk about questions and answers.
1: Um, in regards to accountability for your sins, what age does that start?
0: Twenty is the general rule.
1: Right, that's
0: what I thought. So when, it, when when, when, when you're accountable to, to, when you're accountable to human beings, is it twelve or thirteen, in Jewish law, and accountable to God starts at age twenty.
1: So if I'm not twenty, I'm not. My sins are not being measured. I'm not being written. They
0: are being measured. They're just not being held against you. Well, if you. just
2: turned
0: here. If you sin. And you're. Two things. One, this that's a general rule. There are exceptions. Okay. People that are extremely deep and profound and spiritually sensitive can even be held responsible for their sins when they're children. Um, yes, there are examples of this in, in the Torah. But that's rare. Um, but the other thing is like this. Your sins um, you know, are not just your fault. They're the fault of your community. They're the fault of your family. Um, someone's upbringing, communal tolerance, people not... Showing an interest in correcting other people's behavior in an effective manner, and so the, even the sins of someone who they are not personally responsible for their sins are still counted as part of the sins the community is responsible for. Oh,
1: which is why your sins go back four generations because.
0: That's a different thing. That's if you're. That's technically, that's, that's, that it's
1: my great grandparents who taught my parents who talk. That's why I'm doing sins. No, no, no
0: that no, that's a, that's a different idea. That's that's. If, you are, if, that's, if a person is sinful, then they are punished not only for their sins, but the sins of their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. But that's only if they're sinful because they made a choice to continue that way. That, so those are two different ideas. One is that you're, in other words, one is that you can choose to take upon yourself the sinful path of your ancestors and then you carry that burden four generations back. There's a different idea, which is even if you are not responsible for your sins, for even a child, if a child engages in sinful behavior that's held against their family, the parents, and it's held against the community, that held against the child. Um, so a similar thing would be, you know, when you're, if, if we're talking about before the age of 20. Right. Uh, as a technical note, I do not recommend relying on this idea. Mm-hmm. Not because it's not true, just simply if you get in the habit of excusing away bad behavior, it's not like you hit the age of 20 and you magically stop. Right. So you might want to practice. <laughs> yeah. but,
1: but you shouldn't like feel like you're carrying a burden because you're not. But you should mm-hmm. feel the weight of the rest of the world on you, but... like. <laughs>
4: Let me put it to you like this:
0: You should feel. This is a general rule. It's nothing easy. You should feel the burden enough that you take it seriously and change your behavior, and not so much that you feel paralyzed by it. And that's general advice for everybody. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Uh, this is why they're called the Yomim Noraim, the Days of Neira. Does anyone know what Neira means?
4: Dread.
0: Dread. Something that instills fear in people. We call them the days of awe because, you know, this feels better. But, but, but the basic meaning, I mean, think about it, right? If you were being judged under a microscope by, by God and you knew it, you might feel a little nervous, right? Okay. Fine. Ten days of chuva according to chassidus. Because that's what we're really here for, right? So what we're going to do, do is we're going to talk about how the chuva of the ten days of chuva is different than the tr- normal chuva. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about normal chuva first. And let's keep in mind that as much as the questions are important, and please do ask the questions, but we also keep in mind that that's only half the class. And it's setting up for the second half, which is how on the 10 days of chuva, chuva is different. So what is chuva? First off, chuva um, at its most basic level, in other words, the essence of chuva, the core thing of what chuva is, is the decision that from now on you're going to do what God tells you to do and you're not going to do the stuff that God tells you not to do. In other words, that you from now on you're going to respect God's authority over your life. That decision, when taken sincerely, is tshuva. Now, tshuva can be shallow. Tshuva can be deep. Sh- tshuva can be short-lived. Tshuva can be long-lasting. Tshuva can be brought to life with feelings of regret, yearning for atonement, which we'll talk in a second what that is. Um, it it is supposed to be accompanied by confession, okay? But the core of the tshuva is a decision from here on out to respect God's authority over your life. Tshuva may be weak, in which case that decision actually does not manifest in every area of your life, not because you didn't decide that every area of your life should be in accordance with God's authority, but some things are harder than others. What is not tshuva is feeling bad, but accepting you can do it again anyway, or deciding that you're going to do some things and not other things. Those are not tshuva. Again, a decision to try to do everything God says with the realization that some things are harder and you may not live up to it is tshuva. But it, from, from an outset decision that certain things you're just not going to take seriously and other things you are taking seriously is not tshuva. Because the essence of tshuva as a mitzvah, as a commandment from God, is that you are making the decision to live your life by God's will, to respect his authority. Now, there is a teaching in the Talmud and the teaching of the Talmud says that there are three types of atonement I'm going to come back to what atonement is the Hebrew for atonement is kapara kapara means atonement there are three types of atonement and tshuva accompanies each, and one, each one of them number one if a person neglects to do a positive commandment and they do tshuva God forgives them immediately wait can you say that? I'm going to. If a person neglects to do a positive commandment and does tshuva, God forgives them immediately. So I'm going to give you two examples. I have a commandment to put on tefillin every weekday. Let us say, God forbid, I did not put on tefillin. The minute I realize I did not put on tefillin, that was wrong, and I take it upon myself that from now on, I am going to do my best to live according to God's will. When I make that decision in my heart, sincerely, at that moment, God forgives me for not having put on tefillin. What happens if you don't light Shabbos candles on time and then you don't light them afterwards because that's a, that's a that's a negative sin but you you miss Shabbos candles one week just didn't light them If you decide from now on I'm going to live my life according to God's will and you decide that sincerely to the best of your ability does God hold it against you that you miss Shabbos candles No that's how that works Yes
1: So if you don't like Like you say that And then you don't like candles, like You know Five years in the future Does that mean You weren't sincere no, And
0: no. it wasn't real No There's a beautiful story In the Chumash Which is that <laughs> There was a man Named Yishmael. He was a young man At this time of the story And he was kicked out Of his father's home He was a wicked boy And his father Was Avram Abraham The first Jew God told him to Kick him out Actually, his wife told him to kick him out, and he wasn't sure. And then God said, Listen to your wife and kick him out. He so him out. And his mother, Hagar. And they're wandering through the desert, and they run out of water, and Yishmael is dying. And God sends an angel to Hagar. Parenthetically, Hagar was a bad mother. I should mention this, because it's not really important for the class, but it's important to you know. Hagar was a bad mother. How do we know? Her son is dying, and what does she do? Your son's dying of thirst. That's extremely painful, right? What does she do? Anyone know?
2: She leaves him alone and goes away to cry. Because? Because she can't watch him die.
0: Right. So, but that that means he gets to die alone with no one there comforting him. Right? That's called selfish. Okay? Part of our role as parents, when we're parents, is to be there for our children when it hurts us to be there for them. Maybe that might have something to do with why he ended up such a wicked person. I don't know. Ask a psychiatrist or psychologist or something. But anyway, so he's dying. And then God sends an angel and, and to Hagar, the mother, and says um, that he's heard the pleas of the, of the boy, Yishmael, and I've seen him, and the Hebrew is basher sham, where he is. And so then there's some water, she, and God opens her eyes, and she finds some water, and he lives. And our sages ask, well, why, why, does it, why did the angel say God has seen him where he is? I mean, obviously you see someone where they are. You don't see them where they're not. And so the Medrash explains that Yishmael did, was doing, as Yishmael was dying, as most people do when they die, he's doing tshuva. He's like, yeah, I really shouldn't be a wicked person. That, 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 that's not a good thing. If I could do it over again, I would, I would do what I'm supposed to do. That's tshuva. Yeah, yeah, he knows. Most people who are wicked know that they're wicked. Hmm. Most people have a hard time admitting it to themselves. That's a different thing. Um, there's great Russian literature on that topic, by the way. About people believing that they can they can just decide that they're not wicked when they're really wicked, and then their conscience comes to eat them alive. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he's doing tshuva. And God says, oh, he did shuva, so I I want him to live. God has generally no desire for wicked people to die. He wants them to do shuva and live. That's what the prophet says. The angels come and say, yeah, but God, you know as soon as he gets back to himself, he's going to go back to his wicked ways. And God says to the angels, is he sincere now? And the angels say, yeah, he's sincere now. He says, I judge him where he is. I see him basher hu sham." So when you make the decision... That's so why this can be very short-lived. In fact, tshuva is the easiest mitzvah in the world to do because it's the only mitzvah, that the sincere decision to do the mitzvah is the mitzvah. <laughs> and most people who are mildly involved in Judaism do chuva several times a day, probably. Very short-lived, shallow tshuva. Um, but right, the trick is to do sincere, profound, deep, transformative, long-lasting chuva. Okay, good?
1: Um, yeah. Yeah, but what if you do... I have to just organize my question. What if you do tshuva on something that you planned on doing? The after simple tshuva. answer... After, like, after you did tshuva, right? Here's the
0: simple tshuva. answer. Okay? The simple answer with this is like, it follows. <laughs> Anytime a person wants to do chuva, God helps them. Hmm. Unless you were planning on doing the sin knowing you could do chuva later. Right, then, God funny. does not help you and what you will find is that it becomes very, very difficult to make that commitment in, with any kind of sincerity. That, that commitment is also something that's being done kind of in a kind of self self uh, self-deceiving manner. But we're not going to go into that. But that, that's now you can overcome that, but it's harder. That's, that's the answer. Okay. What if you violate a negative commandment? Then shuva is not sufficient, and you need to wait for Yom Kippur, and then God provides kapara atonement. So let's say. You were late for the Shabbos candles and you decide to light the candles anyway after sunset. So now you violated the Shabbos, which is a very bad thing at that point. Shuva is not enough. You have to wait for Yom Kippur and then God provides atonement. How many are there?
3: Three.
0: Three. Okay, next one. If a person transgresses a serious sin, a serious sin is one that the Torah prescribes capital punishment or having one's soul cut off from God as the punishment. These would be like violating the Shabbos in a biblical sense. This would be like idolatry, the um, transgressions of uh, adultery or um, incest prohibitions, things like that. Eating on Yom Kippur, eating chametz on Pesach, on Passover. These are really serious things. Eating the wrong part of a cow. You know, that one's weird, but it is. So if one violates these more serious sins, then tshuva and Yom Kippur are insufficient and the full atonement only comes through suffering. And the next one, how many are there? Here's the rule in Judaism. If anyone tells you a number, it's not that number. It says there are three and then lists four. So which means one of them doesn't count. You have to figure out why one of them doesn't count. And if one violates a sin in such a manner that it causes a desecration of God's name, tshuva is insufficient, Yom Kippur is insufficient, suffering is insufficient, and full atonement is only achieved through death. This is a public desecration of God's name.
4: What?
0: No, no. Public desecration of God's name would be you do something that causes other people to think Ill, bad of God. You want an example? Yeah. A rabbi who's discovered being a child molester. Mm-hmm. So aside from the actual sin of the harm to the child, there's an additional sin, which is, what kind of reputation does God have after that? Not so great. Right, not so great, right? And that, yeah. So once a once person does a sin like that, they cannot get full atonement in this life. Um, and so, yeah. Now you can try and figure out which one doesn't count. My theory is the last one because the, Bryce, uh, the the teaching is telling us the three things that we can live with, and the fourth one, yes. it, it, it happens to be true, but you can't really live with that. Okay, yeah. Anyone had a question?
1: I do. So, if if for the example that you used, and say that individual went to prison for life, sat in prison and was alive, is it the soul
4: that yes. is dead? Yes. Well, I
0: I I haven't finished explaining okay. things okay. yet, so. I'm going to go into, okay, now one of the things you may have noticed is that the positive mitzvahs, there was no wait period, right? And also, I didn't say kapara, I didn't say atonement, right? I said, God forgives you. In every sin, there's two elements of a sin. There is the rebellion against God, the rejection of his authority. And that that's, doesn't matter what the sin is. And then there's another thing which is that if one fails to do a positive mitzvah, they've missed an opportunity to bring God's light and goodness into the world. And therefore the world is lacking, their soul is lacking, and that's not a positive thing. There's a defect. But, when one violates a negative commandment, they actually damage their soul and they damage the channels that God brings his goodness into the world. Now, What is the difference between a missed opportunity and damage? If if something's damaged, what can you do? You can fix it or you can repair it. But a missed opportunity? It's gone. So which means if a person fails to do a mitzvah that they could have done, you can't. there's there's nothing to fix. All their question is, just God angry with you? And God doesn't hold grudges. If you're sincere about not doing it again, God's like, okay, fine, I won't hold it against you. But there's nothing to fix, it's missed. You can't go back. Men have a mitzvah, an obligation to recite the Shema twice daily. Women are encouraged to recite the Shema, but not required. What is the practical consequence of this requirement? All requirements have rules to them. What is the latest time a man must recite the Shema in the morning? Three hours after the sunrise, or three hours after dawn, depending on which view you follow. And these are, these are not actual hours, these are tw- one twelfth of the day. So in the winter it's shorter, in the summer the longer. So what happens if you're, you know, you, you're tired and you sleep in and you wake up at 10 o'clock in the morning once in a while? So if you're a man, you didn't do a mitzvah that you were obligated to do. And can you ever go back and do that mitzvah again? It's like missing Pesach and you didn't eat the matzah and you didn't drink the four cups of wine. You can't go back and do it again. And a man has that every morning. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a thing. You have to calculate when you're going to sleep and when you're getting up very seriously. Yeah? So based on this, is it actually less bad to
5: violate a, a negative commandment and
0: to miss a positive? Is In what, yes, that is exactly the point. So that's on a, on, from one perspective. Now, I don't want to say therefore it's okay to do it. But on some level, like, you can always correct the transgression of a negative sin, provided you didn't hurt somebody. If you hurt someone, like another person, that's a whole other discussion. So like, 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 if you ate non-kosher food, yeah, you could fix that. You do tshuva, Yom Kippur, and problem solved. But you had
3: the opportunity then to eat kosher food.
0: Different- but eating kosher food is not a positive commandment. It's not. No, There's a positive commandment to like, check to make sure that the food is kosher, um, but it's not the kind of obligatory... It, it's a discussion what kind of command it is, but yeah. Um, so what What that means is that the kind of the worst kind of sin you could do is neglect to do a positive commandment that you're obligated to do because you can't fix it. All that can happen is God can forgive you because you're sincere about not, not doing it, anything like that ever again. Conversely... And this is what kapara, what atonement means. If you've damaged your soul, you've damaged the channels that God uses to bring his light and goodness into the world, those can be fixed. Now, here's an important rule. You cannot fix them. God is the only one who can fix it. This is very important. If you damage your soul through sin, you cannot fix that. Only God can fix it. Now, why would God fix it? Why would he fix it? When when you think you're
3: going back in circle again, going back
0: to... You can't go back to children, right? let's Let's use an example. You're 16 years old. You borrow your parents' car with permission. You drive recklessly, and you crash the car. And you go to your parents and you say, I crashed the car. Mm-hmm. Are they going to now, like, you know, get the car repaired and let you use it again?
1: No, no, they're running. not God. What? They're not God, so. No,
0: they are, actually. God, <laughs> God uses our... As my wife was telling one of my children recently, God gives us parents so we have a model to relate to God. That's what it says in our... Yeah, so... And a That's right, but but this is the, they're not going to just like oh they're going to say well okay you damaged the car so I'm going to just going to like repair and let you go back No, not going to do that. But
4: when parents
1: that do do that and don't hold their kids accountable then you
0: create. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about the, the talk about the differences. We'll talk about the differences. In, um, the, the differences between how people are and how God is in this respect. Is a matter of the quick ease and ability to do something, not what's really supposed to happen. People are in this way, are supposed to emulate God. No, they're not going to fix it because you know you did something wrong. You should suffer your consequences. Why? Why should? Why should swoop in and fix it now? What if you decide you're never going to do it again? Then are they going to fix it? Mm. Um, well, well transfer the. Well, that okay. That, that that right? Yeah. And house and t- uh-huh. What? Okay, but what's, your, what's the overall attitude your parents have to you as like a baseline? Are they in your favor or against you?
4: In your favor. So
0: if you make a mistake, right, and you're really sincere about not repeating that mistake, right? So then what? They
1: will.
0: They will, yeah. right? But if you're not so sincere about it, then no. So here's the rule. What prompts God to provide atonement, kapara, the cleansing way of the sin? The level of sincerity of your tshuva. So you can kind of think of a tshuva as like prayer. Prayer, we pray for God to provide our needs. When we sincerely resolve to live by God's will, the degree of that sincerity, um, so to speak, inspires God to do what he can to undo the damage that we cause through our sins. Now, when it comes to a positive mitzvah, though, there's nothing to repair. It's gone. Yes? But like, say
2: like, like, oh yeah, I'm not going to from now
1: or something, but you're
0: not. Like, you know you're not. That's so, why I said sincerity. Like, do you even bother
4: doing for something that you're not trying
0: to fix? Well, I would say like this, if you're, if you're, then you're just not doing chuva, Then you're just lying about the fact you're doing chuva. Yeah, and if you're lying in your head, like, that's really silly. <laughs> like, yeah. at least lie to other people because you can, you can plausibly convince them. Right? There are two people you can never convince when you're lying, yourself and God. God for sure not. And yourself, usually not. Usually on some level, you know you're lying to yourself. But there are other people you can actually get away with convincing.
2: Yeah. yeah. So should you bother doing tshuva? What do mean? Really you mean? Of
0: course you should bother doing chuva. <laughs> you should just not lie to yourself that you're doing tshuva. Should you, are you asking, should I tell myself I'm doing chuva for stuff that I have no intention of ever working on? No, let's go lying to yourself. You should do chuva. You should have the intention to start working on it and fix it and not do it anymore. <laughs>
4: okay,
0: so. Now, I want to be clear. There's a difference between there's a difference between knowing yourself, and knowing that your sincerity is not that deep, and you're probably it's gonna be going to like, you know, peter out very quickly. A, you can sincerely do tshuva and also realize that by the time tomorrow comes, this is I'm not gonna be holding where I am holding now. That doesn't mean your tshuva isn't sincere; it just means it's there's a shallowness and short short-livedness to it. Okay, and it's important to differentiate those things, right? The, the, way to, the simple way to tell yourself is, right now, at the moment I'm doing chuva, if right now, at this very moment, I had the opportunity to do the sin, and no one was watching me, would I do it? And the answer is no, because it's wrong, and I don't want it to sin, then, then my shuva is sincere. It's just shallow and short-lived.
1: But again, that only applies to the first two points that you're talking about. Because if you talk about the fourth point...
3: Then the desecration, then, yeah. then that does, does not apply?
0: So the thing is like this when does God actually decide to fix up the mess? On Yom Kippur. Now, what if it's a very, very serious sin? Then God needs to do some very deep cleaning. Um, I, this is the analogy I like to use. Sometimes little children get dirty. Now, it makes a very big difference whether they fall into the mud and they come home all muddy, okay? Or they, um, they were playing with like, um, they call it like, like, it's called plastiline in Hebrew. But what is it in English? Plasticine? It's like, it's not, it's like Plato, but it's not Plato. It's like, it's like, it's like, like more plasticky.
4: Plasticine.
0: Plasticine, yeah, they're playing with that and it got in their hair. See, they're, see no, if they're mud, it doesn't matter how much mud there is, right? It's pretty simple. You put them in the shower. You make sure the water is hot enough. Not too hot to the can. They may not like it, but it's done and over with, right? You get that stuff in. You got to scrub and you do this and it pulls and it, ugh, and it hurts. Now, you're not trying to hurt them, but it's going to hurt. Why?
4: Clean
0: it. Right, so some, some cleaning is like, you know, God just washes away the sin, that's Yom Kippur. And some things require deep scrubbing and the deep scrubbing doesn't feel so great. And sometimes the soul can simply not stay, continue in this life. It's just that the sin is so, the stain is so profound and so intrinsically tied with that person's life that the soul has to actually leave the body and that's the desecration of God tonight. Okay, I want to point something out before questions. If God is providing atonement, that means he's not angry with you, right? It means he's already forgiving you. So some people suffer, and some people die because God is punishing them. And some people suffer and die because God is them. has forgiven them and was trying to fix the damage that they did, which is not pleasant, but not because it's against them, right? So it's not, and this is actually something that people that have taken their soul very seriously um, would pray to God that God should bring upon the atonement quickly, even if it causes suffering in their life, because they would rather have a whole soul that's pure and clean and a, and a difficult physical life, then sacrifice the, 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 the health of their soul for something as temporary as the physical world. Um, but you have to be like a, a person who takes your soul really seriously to have that. But yeah, people would pray for that and ask God to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah? What about putting the stone uh, in fire? I don't know what to say, but what about putting the stone in fire?
5: Like, is it an actual inspirational question? That, because the thing is, like, if you are, for example... Like if you're showing an example, if you're eating, if you're eating in a I don't know, non kosher restaurant or something, or you are showing it to other, like you are, you you are, when your example that you are observing, like you are showing the example to other people, who also will do like whatever. You are making the damage not only to yourself. It
0: depends who you are. It depends who you are. In other words, the rule is like this: the greater you are, the more that what you can do is the desecration okay. of God's name. So imagine somebody like. Um, someone like uh, Moshe. Yeah? So if Moshe, right, were to be waiting in line for something, right? People wait in line, right? So Moshe, you know, Moses himself is waiting in line for, I don't know. And somebody cuts him in line. And Moshe starts lashing out. How dare you? What do you think this is? He starts to lose his temper, right? What are all of us going to think?
5: It's fine. It's fine. Like- Moses?
3: Like, if Moses can do it I can do it too like,
5: It's
0: worse than that if Moses if Moses can do it then the whole thing's a joke
3: because The whole thing's
0: a joke right It's
3: like that if you know better you need to do better like he right. knows that he shouldn't do
0: Right it. Now if you see just some your <laughs> some just random person they get up say like okay we all have bad days it's not right but like right there's a, a designation of God's name means it gives God a bad reputation or makes people think that God isn't serious Oh And so yeah the, the, the you know <laughs> there're things that if you're if you're if you're if you're, if you're if you're on a lower level, then they're not a desecration of God's name. And for a higher level, they are a desecration of God's name. One of the examples that's given is raising your voice when you're upset with people. That if you're a Torah scholar and you raise your voice, it's causing a desecration of God's name. Whereas normal people, they just think the guy's having a bad day. They don't think, oh, the whole thing's a joke. Because if, if it was really serious, how could he do that? Whether that expectation is right or wrong, I mean, that's beside the point. That, that's just the way the world works.
5: So it's like both like quality well, of who you are and of people affect. Yeah, your yeah. All of those go yeah. selling non snew like there's sell, sell a feeling that selling non snew new like clothes and like not showing how to appropriately
0: wear them is put in a stomach Stomp before the yeah. mind Yeah but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a publication of Dad's name. If we look at that if, if that person just a regular guy trying to make a living, you just think okay no, no, that no, guy's no, not so yeah, pious. <laughs> yeah, yeah for
4: sure. No. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't worry too much about it. You know, if you try to do everything right the best you can, you're probably not going to end up doing a public desecration of God's saying. The other thing is important to realize is, is that if somebody decides to look at you in the wrong way, that's their problem, right? We're talking about, you know, what you're responsible for in terms of your behavior. Yeah.
2: What if it's like a very religious righteous Jew or like someone who grew up very religious? Uh, for example, just grew up in a very problematic home and got, you know, I don't know, like, did Like let's say they did something by mistake because of their upbringing that was very very severe and other people get to know about and thought Oh wow, this is Judaism. Is this really like what their religion is all about? Is that also this aggression to God's name? Because like that is just like that is still like a regular person It's not a Torah scholar. It's just like someone who grew up in a very problematic environment And what if that person then realizes later on what I did to my children or to my wife or something was very very bad And I want to repent and want to like and can God forgive that?
0: I'll put it to you like this. What? I am not God. Okay. I do not judge people. Okay? There are no where in... There's nowhere where it says clear criteria for all of these things. There's kind of a general sense of things. There is something fundamentally worse about sinning in such a way that it desecrates God's name, makes people take God less seriously. <laughs> what meets that criteria? I can give some obvious examples like I did, right? But when you start getting into things where it's some questionable gray area, that's where you say, look, like, we're, we're not God. We're not God. And you, know, and you have to kind of hold two things at once. You have to say, ultimately God accepts truth from everybody and even, even somebody who's committed the worst sins, God will forgive. I mean, the question is how the soul can be ato- corrected. That's one thing. And on the other hand, not to, not to look at yourself too generously that you're, that you're rationalizing things away. There needs to be a bit of maturity with these things. But there's no way for a person to judge themselves accurately, much less other people. So I don't have an answer for you. And anybody who does is either divinely inspired or lying to you. (laughs) Yes?
3: Um, I'm wondering for someone, let's say like a Jewish person at a restaurant, they say it's kosher, but it's not kosher. Like, and then another Jew eats that food, or, like, you go to someone's house, and they say, oh, my house is kosher, and have Jews eating there. What kind of, like, out of the four um, kapharahs that you listed, like, which one would that fall under? Because you're kind of, like, I don't know if you're, like, know, kind of desecrating God's name and also causing... There's
0: no desecrating... You're is. not desecrating... What, if you were the one who told them that it was kosher? if
3: you're like, if you're, t- like you're blatantly. Yes, lying,
0: then you... I think think people, by the way, are conflating two sins. There's getting someone else to sin and there's a public desecration of God's name. Getting someone else to sin is a very grave sin, but it's not the same thing as a public desecration of God's name. I'll tell you like this. There are, generally speaking, three categories of sinful behavior. Sinful behavior that you knew was sinful and did it anyway. Sinful behavior that you didn't know was sinful behavior, but you should have known. Sinful behavior that you didn't know and there was no way you could have known. Okay? The first two categories counted against you. The third category is not counted against you. Um, you if you don't know, like for the second one,
3: you should have known? Yeah, the things you should have known.
0: Yeah, the things you should have known. The things you should have known. That's why we have sin offerings in the temples there to atone for things that we should have known. We didn't. Okay. What well, would we'll go in that category? Um, you ate some food that wasn't. You ate some food that wasn't kosher. Now you. You could have checked that the food was kosher, and if you couldn't check, you could just have saved from eating it right until you had good halachic evidence that the food was kosher, right? Right, or you didn't review your laws of Shabbos and you violated Shabbos because you forgot that something was prohibited on Shabbos and then you remembered. Yeah. Right? Or you forgot it was Shabbos because you don't take Shabbos seriously enough and so, you know, you just it slipped your mind that it's Shabbos. Those are things that you should have known. Okay? Things that you, there's no way to know. Let's say the food has a kosher certification on it and you buy it and you eat it and it turns out it wasn't kosher. How are you supposed to know? Like you did your due diligence, right? Um, you, you're newly religious and you, never learn, you haven't learned all the laws of Shabbos because you can't learn information infinitely fast, right? And even if you're doing your best, there's stuff you just never, you haven't learned just the natural order of things, right? So how are you supposed to know the stuff that you never learned? And, that you, and there was no reason why you, for you to have learned it. Those would be sins that are really not counted against you. By the way, what does that mean for all of the sins that somebody commits before they become religious? Not talking about sins involving, like, rejection of basic decency and hurting other people. They're not counted as sins. I mean, they're spiritually bad for you, but they're not like... God doesn't look at that person as a sinner. Because they don't know that what they're doing is wrong and there's no legitimate way for them to know that it's wrong. It's like a toddler when they make a mess. Right? They're just being a toddler. It's annoying it can sometimes even be dangerous if they play with bleach, but like, there's nothing to be upset with them about, right? <laughs> if anything, you should keep the bleach on a higher shelf. In a certain sense, it's God's fault. But, yeah? So,
2: with the convert, for example, do they get a new soul, like, after conversion, and they also start
0: from zero? I'm not gonna talk about it. I will have to get to the 10 days of tshuva, and that's just taking us too far afield. Okay, okay. so what you're seeing here is that tshuva is quite powerful, but it's also limited, right? okay during the 10 days of tshuva we have God gives us special ability to reach a deeper level of tshuva now remember what is tshuva at its core at its core is that we accept God's authority right and that has to be done sincerely and we can add depth and, 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 and we can be transformative and we can regret right but there is another kind of tshuva okay and I'm going to give you an analogy for this kind of tshuva. There were once a bunch of non-Jews who were living in Russia. And they dared one of the group to walk across the icy river at the beginning of winter. Now, at the beginning of winter, the river is iced over, but the ice is still rather thick. And so this, this uh, man, he crosses the river, Right? And as he gets to the middle of the river, the ice cracks and he falls into the icy river and he is now drowning to death in the freezing water. How does he feel at that moment about taking them on on the dare? How does he feel about that? Right, like, like, like he can't eat, he, like, I mean, granted, you know, like, we have to freeze frame that moment, right? But that, like, the amount of Psychological anguish and desperation to be able to go back and undo that moment is beyond what the psyche can can handle. In other words, the desire to go back and undo what I've done, to not be where I am now, is traumatic in the sense that it breaks the psyche, and the psyche has to be put back together again afterwards. Now, in that analogy, the guy dies, so like there's nothing to do. Okay? Now, there was a man named Elazar Ben-Dardai, Rabbi Elazar Ben-Dardai, he's called Rabbi Elazar Ben-Dardai, he wasn't much of a rabbi. And he was a big sinner. And he wasn't just like your ordinary kind of sinner. Like when he heard there was a sinful thing to do, he would go do it. And he would spend a lot of money and travel to, to you know, he had like wanted to like, you know, you know, people that travel, like eat all the different kinds of cuisine all over the world. He did that, but with all the different kinds of sins one can do. <laughs> And one time, he's about to commit a sin, and um, someone makes a comment that just like when one passes gas, the gas will never return to where it came from. <laughs> so too, everyone can return to God except a laser bender die.
4: <laughs>
0: Which is funny. Unless you're a bender die. And it hit him how messed up he was. And he just bent over and cried himself to death. He died. It it struck him, the the pit, the spiritual abyss that he had placed himself into and how he could not see any way back to God was so distressing to him that he was traumatized to the point that he actually died from that. Now, the dying part is not a good thing. Tshuva is a mitzvah and it says with the mitzvahs you should live with them. So one has to at least keep enough respect for God to stay alive when you're doing your tshuva. Um, but we'll try to keep that in mind. <laughs> I kid you not this is a serious thing there are some people who are very intense spiritually and they need to keep that in mind um, but the Talmud says about him that he he acquired his portion of the world to come in one moment now you have a question like the guy's full of sin he's never done any mitzvahs how does he get a portion of the world to come how does he like, the, 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 it's not ju- the entryway into the world to come is the Torah and mitzvahs we've done and, and, the, and being free of sin. How did that happen? But we just had a whole half-hour discussion of tshuva and we saw that as powerful as tshuva is, it has limits.
1: Yeah, but not, it seems like he was very sincere. Though.
0: It wasn't that he was sincere. Different word. Sincere is not enough. Regret. Not enough.
4: Anguish.
0: Anguish is the word, right? There's a point at which something moves from sincerity... Something moves from something that I can handle to something that completely is overwhelming. When the desire to escape the spiritual death that I am in and return to God is so raw and so primal that it it causes genuine anguish and the person can't even scream out to God, it's just their their heart is bursting. And that type of an intense desire to return to God that literally shatters everything about what they, who they thought they were, that tshuva is of a different kind of, it's a different order. And it's different rules. Um, how do
1: you come to
0: there? Sometimes a person can be in such a, how do they put it with you, like the 12 steps, right? They the, 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 the hit rock bottom. Sometimes a person goes far enough away and they realize how far they've gotten. And it almost feels like there's no way back.
4: Right.
0: And it hits them.
1: So it's kind of, I don't want to be like premature, but like, it's not very fair.
0: It's just life is fair.
1: No, because like, the more you sit, the more you're going to feel. So you're going to be able to come all the way back. So I didn't sit enough. So I, didn't, I can't even come to where well. you're
0: there is the story of Elijah. Elijah comes to the people, Eliyahu and Avin, he comes to the people. The people were like, um, and note that time, they were very big into worshiping God, because God's great, right, we like God, and worshiping Baal. Baal was a common idol in the Canaanite period. He's a popular too. And he, Eliyahu comes to the people and says, how long are you going to be on both sides of the fence? Either serve God or serve Baal, but stop popping back and forth. And what was his logic? His logic is, yeah, if you're going to sin, then you might as well go all the way. Because if you go all the way, you know what happens? You hit rock bottom and come back. Now, there is a danger in that path. Aside from the tremendous amount of anguish and pain it'll cause you along the way, there's no guarantee you're going to live that long. Right? Some people need like 70, 80 years worth of sin before they get to that place. So I don't recommend it as a path, but it definitely, it is, it is a path.
1: But is that the now thing? you could
0: speed that path up, by the way, which is sometimes you don't have to. You know, this is this notion of hitting rock bottom can happen in two ways. You can hit something which is rock bottom, or you can kind of raise the, raise the floor so that things are, start to feel like they're rock bottom, even though they didn't before. Hmm. But that's hard. But those in. And theoretical. Yeah, not an no premise. This was going to be easy. If you want to totally circumvent the normal order of our relationship with God, because of a, a of tapping into something that deep, that raw, that primal, obviously you're not going to be able to do it with like you know pushing a few buttons and like saying a few chapters of Tilo. It it's not going to work that simple. Yeah.
1: Mm. But isn't that also the mercy of God? Like hitting that rock bottom isn't really up to us. It's really at the end of the day, God reaching out His hand to say, "Okay, I hear you," but it's still I need to reach out to. Yeah, that's you what. Up.
0: That's why that person made the comment about the passing gas. Mm-hmm. That was divine providence to to trigger (laughs) his shuva. Could
1: someone say that about
0: me. (laughs) Now, um, here's the thing. Hasidus speaks about a principle that the way we relate to God is the way God (laughs) relates to us. And there's a difference between relate and and act. So if I have this deep anguish, this, this despair that I just cannot bear of how far I've gone from God and, and how I cannot bear to be separate from Him and, and I've almost given up hope of finding my way back, right? That type of yearning, that type of, of intensity, God reciprocates. And normally His desire to be with us, which is found through the mitzvahs, is tempered, is limited. Okay? Um, to... Think about this in a very simple way. Think about a really good relationship you have with someone. You engage in different kinds of activities that make you feel that you have a kind of togetherness, that your your what's called in chasidis, your will, your positive energy, your enthusiasm for life is kind of in sync with each other. Okay? And by that, it's an important way to maintain it. Which when you get married, it's important to do things together. Okay? If you and your children are growing up, it's important to do things together. And you would you find things that you can have that positive togetherness through those different kinds of activities. You know, with little kids, it's playing blocks. You know, maybe it's having a, a conversation, right? Sometimes it can just be, you know, if you're, if you're more deeper, maybe you could just be sitting on the park bench together, listening to the, to the birds and watching people walk by together, right? But there's, there's some kind of activities which create a kind of space for your souls to intermingle and feel a kind of togetherness. And that's what mitzvahs are. That God's will and God's desire to be with us comes to us through the mitzvahs. And guess what happened if you didn't do a mitzvah, you didn't do a positive mitzvah that you were supposed to do. Right? If you could have gone you could you could have gone bowling with your kids, but you decided that you didn't want to because you were more in, interested in reading this interesting article.
4: You damaged the
0: relationship It's not just you damaged the relationship and even when you go back, can you go back and have that experience? No. Right? But isn't it for us? wait
4: wait wait
0: wait 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 I'm in the middle of a thought, let me finish. So, even when you do of him, when God forgives you, there's this sense that there was this missed opportunity, right? There's there's still a, there's still an emptiness, there's still a tension that's kind of there. Maybe it's big, maybe it's small. Okay. What happens if you 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 have a close relationship with someone? But what do you At, mean emptiness? Well, if you if you have opportunities that you to be with somebody I'll, I'll do it exchange in the receiving it it's a little bit easier to see sometimes than receiving it let's imagine you had a very good friend and the friend um, d- you know keep turns you down from like going out and like having coffee together um, and not because they really had to do it something better to do but whatever they weren't in the mood they just blew you off
4: yeah
0: next time you're out for coffee is that like there somewhere in your psyche, right? And if they're sensitive, they'll pick up, there's something there. And even if they apologize and say it's no big deal, like, it's still like, it's there. And if you have enough of those things over time, over a relationship, what happens? You have what we call baggage. Not because anything is broken, there's not anything to fix, it's just there's a lot of gaps. There's a lot of senses we should have been together had one of us taken this relationship more seriously, and it's not, and it's like Swiss cheese. There's a lot of holes.
4: Yeah.
0: Um, Now let's imagine that um, God forbid this person that you're close to you you thought they had died. There was a car accident and you thought that they had died. And then you discover that in fact they haven't died. How do you feel at that moment? Weird. It is weird but how do you feel towards them? You have a lot of intense energy towards them, right? A lot of, right? Okay, at that moment, the fact that you, that, that, that you weren't, they, they blew you off for coffee. Imagine, imagine, you just discovered that they survived, they're alive, right? And then they say, I'm really sorry that I blew you off for coffee, right? What's your response going to be if you're a halfway normal human being? It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, I don't care, it doesn't matter. Why? Because the, the intensity of, of wanting to be with that person comes from a much deeper place. The analogy that's used in Chassidus is that when a river dries up, if you dig all the way to the, to the groundwater, you can fill the river back up again. The spring will continue to flow. Mayan, <laughs> Yes. Well, but, yeah, but you have to go beneath the Mayan to what's underneath the Mayan. Oh. Yeah. Because the, the Mayan was still flowing. If the spring was still flowing, the, the river would be full, right? So the idea is that when a person gets to that level of anguish, that level of desperation, To return to Hashem, Hashem feels that same intensity to be with the person. And at that point, all everything that was missing and everything that was damaged, it just gets washed away. So if a person goes through the 10 days of tshuva, and they do the tshuva of the 10 days of tshuva, right? This kind of intense tshuva, which is made easier because God is, or as we mentioned in the beginning of the class, God is favorably disposed to us during these 10 days in a way that he's not usually. It's much easier. Then what happens is, it's not that God forgives us for our sins and cleans them away. It's that the intensity of Hashem's desire to be with us means that at least when it comes to our relationship with God, maybe not the refining of the world, but our relationship with God, it's as if the sins never took place. Or and conversely, it's like the mitzvahs had taken place. That it completely changes the feel of the relationship with God. Now, is it this this is not a normal truva, right? This is not the, so when the when the Tom was talking about there's an order of Truva and how the atonement works, it's talking about normal chuva. Normal Truva as I sincerely, to the best of my ability, take upon myself to live according to God's will, and I can add regret and I can add to that you know, asking God for compassion to cleanse my soul and a confession and make it wholehearted and completely transformative, but it's still a limited process and God relates to it in a limited way. But if my desperation to return to him breaks those boundaries and goes to kind of that primal core that we cannot really handle, then Hashem kind of opens up his own core essence. And this is why during the 10 days of Chuva, we add a psalm to the prayers. Okay. Um, I don't know which number it is because I'm very bad at remembering the psalms, but if you look in the Siddur, after the, um, after the um, section of the prayers where we, we praise God before we start the blessings before the Shema in the morning prayers, there's a psalm. And it starts Shir HaMalos, which is a song about a staircase. Don't ask me why these, there's 15 songs about a staircase. Um, that's what Malis <laughs> are, staircases. Um, and then the verse continues, mm-hmm. that from the depths I call out to you, God. And what's the idea here? It's not that we're calling out to God, we're calling out from the depth, from that place that's too raw to really handle. And we call out from our depths, God responds by wanting to be with us with the intensity that comes from His depths. And at that point, at least in terms of the relationship, it's as if the sins had never happened. It's as if the mitzvahs had been done.
4: Right?
0: Now, I, I'm sure many of you are wondering, this sounds very nice, but uh, practically speaking, I don't expect to be doing this. <laughs> um, so I can tell you three things. One, you know, maybe, maybe you will. Right? You never know. Number two, Maybe by knowing about it and thinking about it and, 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 and reflecting on it and pondering it, you might, maybe that will help you get closer to doing it. And both of those things are true, but um, are not very satisfactory because you know we, we know ourselves and the likelihood of us actually getting to that place is quite small. There is an important idea, um, and, and the Rebbe spoke about this specifically in the context of tshufa. And he said like this, we have a principle in Torah that when you are unable to do a mitzvah, what should you do as a substitute? Does anyone know? Let's say you're unable to do a mitzvah. For argument's sake, we'll say sacrifices. Right, you learn about it. If a person studies the Torah that, that about the mitzvah, then that, at least again, in terms of the spiritual dynamic of the mitzvah, is as if you've done the mitzvah. In terms of the changing and affecting the world, it hasn't happened, right? So this is why in our prayers we actually study the parts of the Torah that deal with sacrifices. Um, if you look in, in the siddur everyone has different exact customs. But in the beginning part, after the morning blessings, you'll find sections that have from the written Torah and the oral Torah describing the sacrifices, the daily sacrifices. And the reason is because we can't bring the sacrifices. And what counts as a substitute for the mitzvah is the studying of it, right? And by the way, this has other practical ramifications, like God forbid a person is in prison and they can't hear shofar. What would be an appropriate thing for them to do?
2: Learn
0: about it. Right. At the time of the mitzvah. Okay? Right. Literally, we try to do that, okay? So the Rebbe said, well, what if if we are not capable of doing tshuva in this way? Now, Now, there's a basic tshuva, right? We are capable of sincerely resolving to live by God's will, Right? But the real, I, the idea that, that our tshuva has that kind of emotional depth and certainly getting to a place that we're talking about today where it, it breaks through the normal bounds of the psyche and comes to this place of raw anguish and desperation for God is not something most of us are capable of doing. So then what should we do? Learn about it. Learn about it. And so it is, an, and therefore, if you, and remember I said I'm going to end every class on some practical advice. You should try to take as much time during the 10 days of tshuva to study about tshuva and specifically study about this deeper level of tshuva. Okay? Because, again, when we can't do something, right, the substitute that we have is to study about it. And given that, what does that mean? That would mean that if a person sincerely wishes they could get to this place and they don't know how, they don't see that that's reasonable, they don't really just, they can't, they can't, they don't know what buttons to push. But they try to learn about this, learn about this tshuva and understand it, not just understand it in, in an abstract way, but understand it in a way that it seems real and it seems re- relevant and resonant and something they genuinely connect with and wish they could be in that place, that their, their, their study is a real, it's something, that, it's something that they're really engaged with, then presumably what would happen is God's desire to, re- to be with us with that same intensity would come to that person's soul even if they don't reach that place because of the tshuva, the, because of the study of the tshuva. Um, one last thing that I'm going to say, and then I'll let you take your question. Um, it says in Kabbalah, from the Arizal, um, and a similar idea is found also in other non-Kabbalistic works. Um, there's a book called Shari Tshuva, The Gates of Tshuva, from Rabbeinu Yona, which is like a practical, not so mystical guide on doing tshuva, and a lot good practical tips and discussions of that things. And there's some ideas brought there as well, that just like we have the um, festivals where we have a festive day at the beginning, a festive day at the end, and an intermediate days, where we don't do work, um, we don't go to work if we can avoid it. There's, there's a lot of rules. This is called chalamoid. So you have the day during sukkahs, most of the days of sukkahs, you can do certain activities we normally don't do on festivals, but one should avoid just going to work, um, taking care of business and things like that. I'm not going into all the details. It's still holy days and should be set aside for more religiously focused um, things and and the rejoicing of the festival. So the same idea applies between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That there's seven days, because there's 10 days total, but you subtract two days for Rosh Hashanah, one day for Yom Kippur, you left with seven days. That those seven days are kind of khalomoed and one should minimize to the degree possible of their involvement in mundane affairs and focus as much as possible on um, tshuva. And in our case, if we take the Hasidic idea seriously, not to suffice with merely the sincere resolution and practical steps to actually do the mitzvahs that we've maybe been failing to do, which is the basic idea of tshuva, but studying about the deeper ideas of tshuva to help draw God's deep and intense desire for us back to our souls and thus fill all of the voids and remove all of the defects. That's the kind of practical advice I would give you. I, you should try to minimize it. It's not a halachic thing. Won't you try to minimize it? Now, if you if you work for a living, if you work for a living, right? So you have, and you're not sure what that would mean practically speaking. You could speak to a mentor, right? It's not a halacha, but it's a, you know, it's a proper practice. But certainly, a person who doesn't work for a living, um, you know, it's like someone who's in my seminary full time, you know, maybe the days between Rosh Hashanah and Kippur are not the days to go touring Israel. Now, maybe they are because maybe you maybe you have to do it that day because I don't know you're, 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 it's the only day that your aunt is available and she would be very hurt if you didn't. I mean, whatever. But that's just a general idea, yes. Thank you for waiting. What about, for example, putting yourself like not artificially, but for instance,
5: in the process, like we're talking about this anguish, about this, anguish, about, this like, about this emptiness, about the like about the anguish for for some presence in your life. And typically, how people describe the sort of practical re- representation or realization of this feeling is when they lose someone, like like when someone passes away and something like that. Is, is it kind of like when you're putting yourself in this place, like if you're not in the in the in the, in the moment of breathing anymore, for instance, like but you're still putting yourself in this place and you actually like it's it's more than learning, it's more than like anything that you can ever imagine. It's the same thing, like learning and, for instance, I just remember a lot of conversations on, for example, to Sharaf, that were all like, how can we actually cry about something that we've never had? Like, we can imagine it, and we can, like, put other metaphors into this, like, when someone passes away. Like, like this is something that, we, but it's more, obviously. It's not, like, I don't know, like, because, because I'm thinking, like, because when a person, like, loses someone, I think it's, it, like, it is not like, not enough, but, like, I'm saying, like, this this is the place of anguish, not much, which doesn't, like, I don't know, because I don't know if the question is clear.
0: I'm going to tell is you... Is
5: it kind of the same thing as we do? Like, is it, can it be, like, the same mechanism that we're trying to do on Shabbat?
0: Well, I mean, I'm going to tell you that there are different approaches to, do, to doing things. Um, an important thing to know about Judaism is that Whereas when it comes to the halachas, there tends to be small differences of opinions about technicalities here and there, but the halachic process is the same. It doesn't really matter whether you're Hasidic or Sephardic or whatever, it's all the same. Again, there sometimes reach small technical differences about certain things here and there. But when you talk about spiritual growth and service of God and things like that, there is a tremendous range of different approaches. And there are things that are encouraged in certain schools of thought, and that those very same things are condemned in other schools of thought. I am only really proficient in the school of thought in which I try to live my life, which is Chabad. I have passive familiarity with other things because I like to know stuff. So I'm not a good person to ask if you're gonna wanna know like, how to really use techniques that in, in, the, in the Chabad methodology are looked down upon as not legitimate techniques. One thing that Chabad speaks very much against is using imagination mm-hmm. as a way of moving yourself emotionally and spiritually. putting so yourself in an emotional place. Right. Um, the idea in Chabad is that the soul knows the truth. And if you can bring your mind into a place where it is... Really engaging with that truth deeply, the way the soul sees things will start to come through without you even trying to make it happen. That is extremely difficult. The Chabad approach is called a long way and a short way. It's long because it doesn't, it's not quick, it's not easy. But if you stick with it, eventually something really legitimate comes in. So in Chabad, they would tell a story that there was one time a, a man who was getting up and giving an inspirational speech, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, whatever it was, and he told the story about this princess and how she was taken captive and she wasn't able to go be with her, fa- her father and the king in the palace and someone came and rescued the princess and then she was able to turn to her father and he did it very dramatically and everyone was moved to tears and there was a, a Chabad chassid sitting in the audience and he turned to the person next to him and says, why are you crying? He says, don't you, don't you, don't you hear the story? He says, now, what I'll tell you the story as it was originally, okay? It may be not so politically correct. So this is in this is in Tsarist Russia, okay? So who's the princesses that people know about?
4: Anastasia. <laughs> <laughs> Anastasia. <laughs> The, 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 you know, these are these are these
0: are these are these are these are the these are the, these are the daughters of the, the the kings and the noblemen, right? We're not exactly people that like the Jews were like, you know, they weren't exactly good to the Jews, to put it mildly. So he's saying, so he says, your you're da- your, your crying over because some anti-Semite's daughter got taken prisoner, and the man said, realize that like it was very dramatic, it was very engaging, right? That there's a certain way you can like get a person's emotions and that's how movies and literature work. But like, did you become in any way more uh, sensitive to your soul and to God in that process? No, but you were very moved. And so from the Chabad point of view, how moved you are is never the concern. The concern is how much it's grounded in in something true. Now, I will be honest and say there are other paths in in, in Judaism. There are other groups that that disagree with Chabad on that point. so if you were to ask me about Tishubov, I would say the same thing that like imagining feelings of loss and and trying to like draw the parallel that, that I would in Chabad, you're also just crying over over your personal loss, not the Temple, and, and it is hard. Um, and and this is one of the reasons why Chabad rests upon the idea that you have a godly soul, that you're, that 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 assumption that you made, it's not I don't I don't know it, I never experienced it, is not entirely true. There is a part of you that does know the truth, does know what it means not to have a temple, does know what it means to be disconnected from God. And it's the conscious part of ourselves that needs to become attuned attuned to that, and that's through a kind of deep, reflective process, which requires knowledge. That's not what I was saying here. What I was saying here is just the the fact that you're studying it and it seems important, God can count that as if we got to that place if we're really not able to get to that place. The, but the kind of the real Chabad approach would be to take these ideas and sit and reflect upon them deeply until they move you without you even realizing that it happened. And there are people that, that, that achieve that, but it's, a, it, that's a, something to, to, it's not something you can do as a hobby. You have to like make that a priority and not. So I'll leave it at that. Other questions?
1: Um, in talking about suffering, this is like an age-old question, but...
0: Why do we suffer?
1: No, is this the only source of su- suffering? This kind of cleansing?
0: No, there's suffering is punishment.
1: <laughs> okay, but that...
0: That's already two kinds of suffering.
1: A, but that's in the same realm. That's no, it's I,
0: not. They're opposites. They're opposites, entirely opposite.
1: But punishment comes out of yom-shin
0: well. No, punishment comes because God thinks you're a bad person and deserve it. And once you do chuva, God doesn't think you're a bad person. Mm-hmm.
1: God doesn't think you're a bad person.
0: That is not true.
1: Really? Really. That God thinks that God someone's bad? But, God but there's God. no such thing no, as a bad person. That's
0: what yeah. Yeah.
4: we're supposed to think. <laughs> I didn't...
0: I mean... I didn't. <laughs> God thinks that when people choose to do wrong... And they and they continue to live by that choice and have not made a decision that actually it's wrong to live a wrong way. Those are bad people. And you know what God I mean?
1: Like suicide? As in that's
0: what they're just using Hebrew word, but yeah. No, but
1: there's a whole like anyone that does a sin is called rational.
4: I'm going to I speak, ve- I'm
0: going to speak very simply and not overcomplicate things. People make things overly complicated. They add chassidists maybe where they shouldn't. Yeah. There's such a thing called a bad person. A wicked person. What? A wicked person is very simple. A wicked person is someone who does things that are wrong. Mm-hmm. And even when they know that it's wrong, they continue to do so anyway. That is a wicked person. Even if
5: they feel bad for doing it, they still do it anyway.
0: Yeah, our sages say, our sages say the wicked are full of regrets.
5: And what does it mean as
4: a bad...
0: God, I'm going to be very, very blunt. God judges people based on the choices that they actually make, not how bad they feel about them. Okay? Now, what if a person makes a bad choice and thinks it's a bad choice and they decide, next time I'm going to make the right choice. Are they a bad person anymore? No if they're sincere about making the right choice. And what if they make the bad choice? Next time they come around, now they're a bad person again. Yeah. So, in other words, from the moment you make a bad choice and the moment you decide you're not gonna make any bad choices, that's a bad person. And some people, they really get there and they stay there. And some people, you know, they, they, they fall into that place like, you know, every so often for a minute or two and then get back out of that place.
1: Then what's a good person?
0: A good person is a person who makes the right choices. Right,
1: but nobody only makes right choices. One second,
0: one second, one second, one second. second. Most people, most people make right choices and occasional bad choices and then decide that next time it comes around, what am I going to do?
1: Make the right choice? So that means,
0: I didn't say necessarily, I'm talking about as a general rule.
1: I don't think it's a general because there are so many little things in life that uh, nobody see, see, says see, see, next time
0: really we're because, right. because part of what's happening is that you're judging, you're judging not choices, you're judging behaviors. You see, I keep using the word choice. Not everything is a choice. For instance, if... I see your hand, just one second. If you have bad habits yeah. and you make a choice to change your habits and then you try to use hypervigilance to make sure that you don't do any of your bad habits... You will fail. That is how God created people. Okay. So therefore, the fact that you made a choice to change your habits, right? And then pick one thing to work on. It doesn't mean you made a bad choice about all the other stuff. So there's, there's a lot more involved in, in, in judging That's choices.
1: You said, said it's simple, but
0: it's not. It's very, very simple. The problem is people complicate it by focusing on behaviors. By focusing on what I'm doing rather than what I'm choosing to, I'll give you. I'll give you a very very simple example. Okay, if you make a decision not to eat without making a bracha first, yeah. that is the then decision. okay, you made that decision. Now, at what point, at what point would we now say that you're that you went back to being a bad person? If we just looked at one behavior. The next time you eat without making a bracha first. No. Well,
1: the next time you don't make the choice not to make
0: the So the next time, right, the next time you put the food up and you're about to eat it, and you're like, I should make a bracha. Like, no, nah, never mind. Didn't you make it? Now, how often does that happen? Or you realize you didn't make a bracha and there's still food left, and you say, oh, I, I'm not going to bother making a bracha now. Not that often. Most of what we do wrong is because we forget. We're not in the habit. We're tired. We're hungry etc. Cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Which is why this actually is a relevant thing in halacha. In halacha, there is a general presumption that a person is not a bad person. This is ramifications in halacha. Because if it was, everybody would be invalid as witnesses. Nobody could, could count as part of a minion. Like there's a there's a presumption that most people, generally speaking, are to... Try- now. Sometimes we know a person is a bad person. Sometimes we know this person is engaged in the behavior It's wrong. We know that we know they know it's wrong. They've been spoken to about it, and they've decided that they're going to keep going with it okay that's at that, that point we can label the person as wicked God, God knows where a person's holding and um, you know I don't want to end on this so I'm going to end up to say something afterwards hope your question is more positive
4: but the,
0: the, I'm going to end on one very I'm going to say this which is kind of harsh um, if a person does a mitzvah and they're a bad person do you know what God's response is? I don't need, it. I don't need your mitzvahs now I want to be clear what does that mean? That means I just did something... I made a bad choice. And I know it was a bad choice. And I'm not intending to make the right choice. But here, God, I did a mitzvah for you. And God says, don't do me any favors. That's different than a person saying, I did something wrong. I know it's wrong. I make a decision not to do it again. I don't know how well I'll keep that decision because I'm weak. But I'm going to try my best. And here's a mitzvah. God's like, oh, I'm very happy you did a mitzvah. Those are not the same thing.
4: Yeah. But...
1: I'm not I'm still not very sure how to like differentiate between making a choice and a behavior because the way
0: to do that the way to do that is to take one day
1: yeah and to look at
0: and to look at the day and you should not find more than five of them moments where you had a sense at that moment that you have two paths before you and you decided one is supposed to the other and then the day unfolded differently because of that. In terms of right things and wrong things. There are not that many more points of the day. Most of what we do is on autopilot. Most of what we do is habit. Most of what we do is routine. Most of what we do is instant response. But why
1: would the day unfold differently
0: because of your bed? a simple, simple thing, yeah. Um, I get home. One of my kids um, is being annoying.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, it's getting close to bedtime. I have things I have to do after they go to bed. I'm feeling impatient, Right? And um, instead of going to their bed, they decide to go on the couch and read a book. And I feel that little monster rising up inside of me to snap and yell at them. And I also feel the sense that, like, you know, that's not a good thing to do for numerous, numerous reasons. And at that moment, what could I do? Like, you can, like what could I do at that moment? I could start screaming. Now, if I start screaming, what's going to happen? Now we have a whole series of events that unfolds. I start screaming, the kid gets upset, now I feel guilty. There's a whole thing that follows from that, right? Then my wife gets upset, I get upset. The whole evening now is a whole different evening, right? Now everything that happens after that, in a certain sense, it's like once you throw the jug off the roof, right, the fact that it breaks and it spills is like, that's going to happen. And there there are moments throughout our day, and there are not that many of them, where we really, really, those are the things we can choose. And the problem is that people look at all this stuff that they do, okay? And, and the thing is you have to actually look at it and you actually to start, to, start to feel it. That's when you start to feel your autonomy. That's when you start to feel your agency. That's when you start to develop a sense of accountability. That's something how God is judging me. And that's an the, the, overused expression, but it's a maturing process. And to realize that most of what we don't do correctly is because we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the habits. That's not an excuse. It just means that if I want to change those things, you know, cho- choice, making the right choice is only good for the things that, I, that the problems have made the wrong choice. Things that I don't have good habits that develop good develop good habits. Things I don't know I have to learn. If the problem is I'm tired and hungry then I have to sleep and eat more regularly. Right? You have to know what the problem is. And you're only wicked based on choices. The other stuff you're not wicked for. You're just, you're flawed. I hope this is more positive. <laughs> yes? I don't know if it's more positive.
5: I'm just curious. Like, if... Someone who makes a choice to sin is bad, but sometimes it's not so straightforward. Sometimes people feel a lot of, let's say, like pressure to do something. Like a simple one would be like, let's say you go to the store with your friends all the time and they start saying like, oh, steal that. And at first you're like, no, I don't want to do that. And then for one reason or another over time, like the pressure builds up enough and you do it, and you you know it's wrong, you don't want to,
0: but you feel so much pressure to, like what's the perspective on that? Honestly, the one of the first laws in the Code of Jewish Law is not to be embarrassed for doing the right thing. That to, to kind of learn to, learn to live life based on your conscience and not based on peer pressure. And now you have to ask a question, not about the stealing, did the person, have the opportunity to make choices to avoid that. For instance, you know, let they probably realized that, you know, maybe this is not the right group of friends for me and maybe they just shouldn't hang around those people to begin with. And they said you want to hang out and that that at that point they could have said no. Mm-hmm. So that's the choice they're responsible for.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: See what I'm saying? Now you have to go back and figure out what that is, and you know, part, part of the idea of making an accounting, right? we're about L, the idea of making an accounting, and we speak of this idea, is really looking at these types of things. People think, oh, let me think of all the wrong things and all the right things I did, and I'll see that. Like, that's silly, because the point of, of making accounting is to fix stuff. It's like if you run a business, right, and you make a list of everything, every, every cent that you, that you take in in revenue, every cent that goes out in expenses, right? But there's no understanding of how those processes come about. That accounting is pointless. Right? You need to know what the processes were that lead to those revenues and lead to those expenses and figure out what's working, what's not, and then fix the stuff. So again, if, if things are because you're tired, get more sleep. If things are because you're hungry, then eat better. If things are because you're in the wrong group of friends, then that's the choice you need to make. If things are because you're ignorant, so learn more. And again, all these things take time. But if the things, I just made bad choices. So then make better choices. And that's the essence of chuva, the decision that I'm gonna make the right choice going forward. And that can only come, this is a larger discussion, that can only come from acknowledging that it was a choice. If you feel that it wasn't your choice to do the wrong thing, then you can never do chuva. Because then you're a victim of whatever circumstance, habit, and sometimes you really are. Right? Sometimes you're a victim of your own ignorance, your own tiredness, your own hunger, your own spiritual lack of sensitivity. Now, maybe you're responsible for those things indirectly because you made some other choice. So then that's a choice you should fix. Or you made the choice to
1: feel like a victim.
0: That could also be. So when a person makes bad choices and decides that they're going to kind of double down on them, that's a bad person. When a person said, I made bad choices, so now I'm going to make good choices, that's a good person. It's not so incredibly complicated. It, it, it's messy because it requires a lot of honesty and a lot of sensitivity to what's a choice, what's not a choice. But as a conceptual idea, it's not a complicated idea. And that's how God judges us. If you want to talk about what Hasidus is talking about, Chassidus is talking about a deeper thing, which is the quality of the relationship with God. That's a whole discussion. You can be a good person, but the quality of the relationship with Hashem might not be so great. That's a different discussion.
1: What you're saying basically, that the, only bad, the only time you could be rendered a bad person is when you make a bad choice for the sake of making a bad choice.
0: When you make a bad choice, and then you decide to double down on it, and you're not going to make good choices going forward
1: what if you make a bad choice but you want to make a good choice but you're choosing to make a bad
0: choice <laughs> then you're that, then, then you're a bad person that's a bad person so
1: essentially the Israelites were going
3: through
5: this cycle of this yes, concept out. Right. Oh.
0: that's punishment that's punishment but learning how to do this starts as a child like one of the most important things parents can do parents and teachers can do for children is learn to help children recognize what are choices and how to make right ones